Kirsten. Yes. I have to say that I'm very, very, very jealous. What possibly for? Because you are invited to amazing things and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm just more of a big deal, more famous. <laughs> probably, probably. I think that that is that. Anyway, I'm saying that because Kerstin here, she has been invited to be one of the key speakers for the Byron Bay 2020 Astronomy Festival star stuff. Star stuff. Yep. That is amazing. So well done. Thank you. It's going to be lots of fun. I'm really excited to be surrounded by more people who are just excited about space as I am. Mm -hmm. I won't look like the weirdo anymore. This is going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this festival has been running for some few years and I have to say that I have tried to go a couple of times but never made it. That is organized mainly by our friend uh, Dylan O'Donnell who, by the way, if you have not had a chance to watch his YouTube channel, do it because it's very funny. <laughs> Although mainly it is about amateur astronomy stuff, about instrumentation of telescope and how you can process different kind of images. But also he has plenty of other funny videos about the difference between visual astronomy, looking through a telescope, and astrophotographers. That is a very funny video to watch. <laughs> you are sharing this panel with some few amazing people, as you said. Indeed, we've got Carly Noon going. I'm so excited to share the stage with her. She's fantastic. If you don't know about Carly Noon, you should know about Carly Noon. She's an mm. absolutely deadly Aboriginal scientist. Oh, she's so inspirational and so cool, and I'm very proud to call her a very close friend of mine. Mm. Marnie Og. She's also there talking yep. about light pollution, as well as our friend Lisa Harvey-Smith. Yes, it's going to be great. There's just so many fantastic people. And even if anyone's following uh, a bit of popular culture and whatnot, we have Dr. Matt Agnew, the bachelor from 2019, <laughs> is going to be going to that, star stuff. That is definitely going to be a lot of fun. Although I would have loved to have the chance of going for meeting Trevor Jones who is another amateur astronomer from Canada, very famous in YouTube for organizing plenty of observations with different uh, telescopes and cameras and uh, mounts, and he's explaining that very much in his uh, YouTube channel. Amazing, amazing guy. I'm very friend of Thailand, that is why <laughs> he's also attending. Anyway, perhaps in 2021. Maybe. We didn't mention that. That will be on the 18th of July, 2020. And I've just realized they've picked it very well because it's under a moonless sky, which that, is much better for observing. That is the plan. That is the plan. Amazing. Yes. A pity that for sure that week I will be overseas. So Aww. even though I have not been invited, I will not be able to go. Yes. Perhaps next time we can go as... The scientists. Exactly. That would be pretty cool, actually. Yeah. That would be very cool. Because... Hello, I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. Alright, hello everyone and welcome to our next episode of Season 3. We're up to episode... 33. 33 is so episode 5? Yeah, 6. 6! I can't keep count. Despite my degree in astrophysics, I cannot count. 
Counting's hard. Don't put it on you. The other day I just was short $100 because I didn't know how to add. <laughs> it's, it's a hard life. Yes, it's a hard it, life. it is a hard life. But anyway, welcome to our next episode where it's a bit of a special episode because we are very close to International Women's Day. So just like last year when we talked about very important women in astrophysics from the past and in towards the present as well, we're going to be dedicating this episode to women in science, but it's going to be a bit different from last year. Actually, Women in Science Day will be for us next week, but for you, it will have been already two days ago, because we are releasing this on a Thursday, and the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, it is on the Tuesday 11th of February. But anyway, feedback. We have some feedback. Yeah, we have some feedback again from our friend Cafuego, who, of course, is following us very closely. And every time that we release an episode and saying, hey, have a look to this object in WhatsApp, well, he's trying to do it, uh, send us an image. Excellent. So in the previous episode, we were talking about Venus and for WhatsApp, and he just sent uh, Jibo's Venus, obtained it during last week using a 20 centimeter telescope of f10, a little planetary camera and a 2.5 Barlow lens, and you can see very well the Jibo's face of Venus. Oh, it looks very nice. You can see the phase and everything. Mm -hmm. And that also reminds me that in some moment in that episode that you mentioned an amazing photo of the Moon and Venus in the same phase, Yes. and I said, well, if they're in the same position of the sky, they should have the same face. But that's not quite right. I thought it might have been a bit odd. So it is right if Venus it is in the same position. I mean, if it is in the like close to close the po Earth. position for us. Mm. But it is not. No. It is on the other way around. So more of it's being lit up. Yes. Because, from our perspective. Because remember that Venus is a planet that is moving closer to the sun. That the Earth is is doing that. So we can only see it from very uh, when it is relatively close to the sun. And sometimes we see it when it is closer to us and sometimes when it is farther away from us because it is actually going to the sun will be less distance than going to Venus. If you put that into perspective, even though the moon is in the same patch of the sky, mm. our moon, if Venus is exactly in the nearest point to the Earth, then they should have had the same face because they are more or less illuminated with the same angle. Yes. But if Venus is in the other part of the solar system... So behind the sun. It's kind of behind, but not behind. Behind it, but not behind it, that we can still see it. Yes. <laughs> so in that point, Venus will be very different, illuminated by the sun. And you will see probably perhaps um, Gibos Venus as the one that our friend Cafuego is sending us, while our moon is only having a crescent, tiny crescent moon. Mm. Excellent. So actually, I was observing Venus also the other day. Ooh. Finally, after three months, I was able to assemble my new 8 inches telescope here in the garden. Finally! <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally. And I was taking some few images of the Moon and Venus and the Orion Nebula. Not very good because it was uh, last week on Saturday when we had almost 40 degrees. <laughs> it, was, it was a hot one. It was a very hot day and you could see actually everything moving quickly. So it was just dramatically changing because of all the movement in our atmosphere. But at least, hey, finally I have used my new telescope. And I wanted to share that with you too. 
Well, thank you for sending that photo through, Clafuego. It's fantastic. We do love to see, we'd love to see more of your images. Not going to lie. They've been fantastic every single time. Mm-hmm. And that's all our feedback for today. Yes, that is all our feedback for today. So on to space news. Anna, would you like to start? So my space news, it is that uh, just uh, yesterday for, for us, as we are recording, last week, when you are listening to this, or perhaps it happened a lot of time ago, but at least the week after. I think just don't, don't worry about that. Don't just don't worry about that. It's too confusing. Too, too confusing. But the thing is that right now, it doesn't matter when you're listening to this. Our time is not linear anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the SkyMapper team have released the third data released of this uh, telescope. So if you are not familiar to SkyMapper, SkyMapper it is a 1.35 meter telescope installed at Sidon Spring Observatory that is managed by Australian National University through the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics. And it is a state-of-the-art, very wide field survey telescope that is trying to conduct a survey of all the southern sky and a bit also of the northern sky in different colors and in different epochs, meaning observing the same field during several years. And that is also very important for understanding transient phenomena happening in the sky. Mm, and seeing the changes that we see in the night sky. Or mm-hmm. that we don't see, but the telescopes do. So for making a kind of analogy, it will be the Slow and Digital Sky Survey in the south. So that is what this telescope is doing. Mm-hmm. SkyMapper has a relatively low focal ratio of only an f of 4 and has a camera with 268 million pixels. Whoa, that's a lot of pixels. And that camera is allowing to capture a region of the sky which is 30 times larger than the full moon. Whoa. Every 20 seconds. I've always been impressed and surprised by SkyMapper, but that's just increased it tenfold. Oh my goodness. Well, you have seen the very deep images that they have been obtaining. Particularly, I remember when I was seeing that the very first test that we were taking with the camera some few years ago, it was just... Whoa. Whoa. Centaurus Galaxy, the Centaurus Galaxy. Absolutely amazing. Well, the point it is that uh, these have been released for Australian astronomers. Uh, these uh, data release have around 200,000 images. And it has the detection of around 8 billion objects in the southern sky. Wow. So actually I'm (laughs) eager just to go and I should start to dig the images and the data for the galaxies that I'm observing with the AED. The billions of objects. (laughs) Not billions. I just want the deep images (laughs) around my dwarf galaxies to check if I can find something funny diffuse around Mm. there. I guess it just goes to show that it just really drives home that astronomy has a lot of data to mm. go through. And that's why these citizen science projects are fantastic, because it lets people get involved, because it's not going to lie, it's a bit of free labor. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. But it, it, um, if you discover something, it doesn't mean you won't be attributed to the research, because that has happened before. Citizen scientists have been on author lists Yes, they have been, definitely. Awesome. There is a little problem when you have hundreds of thousands of citizen scientists <laughs> <True>. <laughs> doing that. That is, for example, the very famous case of Galaxy Zoo, mm. when they have plenty of collaboration, but they are all in some way listed in the webpage. They cannot be on the paper, but they're there. 
However, the people that in the blog and in the comments they are mentioning, for example, the discovery of, oh, there's some few funny, fuzzy objects that are appearing in green oh. that we are calling green peas. Okay. So these objects, the green pea galaxies, that are actually very active star-forming objects, they were discovered by citizen scientists in this kind of forums because they were noticing that. And the people who first noticed that, the citizen scientists that first noticed that, they were indeed included as co-authors in the scientific papers. So that is another example. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It would be easy for um, no professional astronomers to dig into the sky mapper data. Actually, you need some few tools that are very mm. commonly used by professional astronomers, but they are there, so you can go for for them. I don't want to forget something also important with this data that the photometry. The photometry means the way we measure the brightness of different objects. Mm have it anchored to the Gaia data release 2. Oh, that's good. Gaia is also another very good Yes, so that is also thing. very important. And it seems that these variations in the photometry is lower than 1%, which for me it is unbelievable because many times we are saying in astronomy, ah, if we have an error or an uncertainty of 10% in photometry distances or so on, oh. it's good. But it's, we are, it's all right, but we want something better. We are pushing that to 5% in the last few years, let's say decade, but definitely we need to go to 1% or below than that for pushing even further. Oh, you know, the spectroscopy result. is pretty good too. <laughs> ah, yeah, well, but the spectroscopy has the same problem. The calibration in flux in the spectroscopy mm. data still has at least, at least if you are very good, between 5 and 10% uncertainty, mm. for sure. And I can tell you that, that I have a continuous fight with those kind of data. <laughs> anyway, that was my space news. What about yours? Mine? Okay, we're talking about the warp factor. The what? The warp factor. And no, this is not something out of science fiction. I was thinking that you are coming that from Star Trek. No, no. No warp drives or anything like that. We have the warp factor. So researchers have observed a spinning star that drags space-time with it. Okay. That's exactly what okay. I said. I'm like, wait, what? Okay. What does this mean? So I wrote about it, and it's one of the predictions of Einstein's general theory of relativity mm -hmm. is that any spinning body drags space-time with it. Okay. The space-time vicinity at, around it. At the end of the day, that is the way we have been detecting the gravitational waves from merging black holes and merging black holes and uh, neutron yes. stars because they are just dragging and moving the space as they spin around them or moving one around the other. And that's right. But instead, it's now, it's it's just a spin. It's just the spin of one single object. So yes. For that, I assume that it should go with a very, very high speed. Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. So... The article that I read, it's called Warp Factor. We observed a spinning star that drags the very fabric of space and time. It was published on the 31st of January on The Conversation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they say that even the Earth spin causes some small amount of frame dragging, which is this, the, the technical term for dragging space-time. I, I like that, frame dragging. Because mm, it's dragging your, kind of like your frame of reference, <laughs> the frame around uh, the star. It is, is coming cool. from there, for sure. Mm. So 
If we were to detect the frame dragging caused by the Earth's spin, it would require a satellite such as the US $750 million Gravity Probe B and the detection of angular changes in gyroscopes equivalent to just one degree every 100,000 years or so. Oh, well. One degree in 100,000 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in 100,000 years, we'll see Betelgeuse explode and detect <laughs> a degree of change in the space-time around the Earth. So you guys just better... We better stay alive for 100,000 years so we can see those two things. But it's, it's very hard because the, the Earth is not very massive and the Earth is, doesn't spin very fast. Mm -hmm. so. so what is this object special? Why? Why? So this particular naturally occurring gravitational laboratory, mm -hmm. as they're calling it, which I think is really cool, is actually a pair of stars. You want to hear its name? Ah, uh, Bed of stars. Okay, mm. now it's starting to make a bit more sense. That's right, yes. So the name of these stars, very easy to remember. PSR J1141-6545. Okay. <laughs> I'll say that one more time. <laughs> PSR J1141-6545 is what they're calling an ideal gravitational laboratory. Uh, usually PSR, that designation, it is only given to pulsars, which is actually the abbreviation of pulsar, mm -hmm. PSR. That's right. So there is a pulsar as one of these twin uh, stars. Mm. It so, is starting to make even more yeah, sense. It's coming together now. So 20 years ago, CSIRO, the Parkes Radio Telescope, mm -hmm. discovered this very unique pair of stars, which contains a pulsar. Mm -hmm. So a very rapidly rotating neutron star, and a white dwarf. Uh -huh. So these two stars are orbiting around each other, and they've been observing it for about 20 years. It is an interesting pair. So that is a pulsar, which is a neutron star, the rest of the debris of a very massive star that exploded at a supernova, and then that would have happened first, and then the other star eventually ended up releasing the atmosphere, becoming a planetary nebula, and also creating a white dwarf star. They actually think it happened the other way around. How? Yes. So they're, they're claiming in rare cases, like this one, so the first star has turned into a white dwarf, and the white dwarf is leeching mass away from its companion, as it usually does. White Dwarf doesn't get to the point where it explodes, because then we wouldn't have this situation here. We have had a Type 1A supernova. Exactly. But then the second star then explodes in a supernova, producing this neutron star. Okay, 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 okay. Wait, wait, wait. Mm -hmm. So we were talking that very much a couple of episodes ago, when we were explaining and discussing the stellar evolution. So the final stages and the way that stars die depend a lot on the mass the star. But more massive stars evolve much more rapidly than low mass stars. So if one star is going to be a pulsar that is coming from a star that originally should have had at least eight times the mass of the sun, would have been only living for some few tens of million years, but for creating a white dwarf star and a planetary nebula, you need a low mass star. Okay, perhaps it was not a solar mass star, it is a star that is five, six times the mass of the sun, 
but still, I would expect that the white dwarf would have formed second. Second, yes. Because it would have been from the, the less massive star. So, yes, yeah, so they do say it's a very rare case that this has happened. So, like they say in the article, just like you said just then, the more massive star will die first mm -hmm. and are often creating a white dwarf. Uh, so before the second star dies, it transfers matter onto the white dwarf because that leeching and huge amount of gravitational pull from the white dwarf. During that time, a disk forms as a material form falls around the white dwarf which causes it to increase its spinning speed, mm -hmm. okay, until it rotates once every few minutes. But then in rare cases like this one, the second star can then detonate in a supernova, leaving behind a pulsar. Okay, well, okay. And it's the rapidly spinning white dwarf that drags space-time around with it, making the pulsar's orbital plane tilt. Oh, and process so the actual orbital plane of the processing. pulsar is processing. So definitely, it is a very interesting system. Something weird that I have never heard of, and it is breaking as we are just <laughs> breaking your brain. <laughs> the, 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 the way that we have learned, and that is good. That is very good. It's exciting because that is also what it is making our knowledge about the cosmos and the universe and the evolution of the stars in this case to improve. To we will know a bit more. So at the end of the day, we are sometimes classifying things. Oh, that is a comet. That is an asteroid. But actually, there are yeah, wait, things so in between. <laughs> that is a planet, and that is a round dwarf star. It's <laughs> 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 a frontier. <laughs> good. So. But are you ready for some amazing facts about this system? Ah, there's still more. Still, just two more things. So the pulsar in the study spins 150 times every minute. 150 times per minute. Okay, yes. that is a bit more than two per second. Mm, it's a pretty fast. Two and a half, perhaps, per second. Pretty fast, rapidly rotating star. And they found that the two stars orbit each other. Guess how often they orbit each other? Mm, some few minutes. Oh, okay, you guessed too much. Uh, too little, rather. So they orbit each other once every less than five hours. Five hours. That's still pretty fast, though. Imagine, still very fast. imagine a day being five hours. <laughs> You'd have to get everything done really quickly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Every five hours. Hey, happy new year! Happy new year! <laughs> oh, in this place, they are always celebrating things. That's right. But there we go, that's my space news. Some pretty cool stuff. Good, good, good. You mentioned Beetlejuice in some moment during your space news. Mm. I don't remember why, well, but it was it was there, and and I have been tempted to create a new subsection here <laughs> in the scientist. What is happening? What's going Beetlejuice? on with Beetlejuice? What's happened, Beetlejuice? <laughs> <laughs> Beetlejuice status, something like that. Just for keeping us busy also, um, and I'm going just to be very quick here. Just attending to the last uh, measurements during the last week, since the last time we actually recorded, still is more or less the same, with a magnitude of around 1.6. Mm -hmm. So quite faint. Yeah, I'm tempted to say that it seems it's really reaching a plateau, mm -hmm. the minimum magnitude, but still we have, to, we have to check and we have to see how it is evolving. Mm. Definitely, it's not going to explode at a supernova yet. Just in case you didn't just, catch that in the last three episodes. Just in case. 
Yes, and interestingly, the obscuration, it is only happening in the colors that we see in optical wavelengths. Also oh, not infrared or not anything in infrared. like that. It was something that I forgot to mention in our previous episode, and that is very interesting. That is very and, interesting. And it is also suggesting in some way that it is dust. Mm. or some kind of extra obscuration that is coming, probably releasing from the atmosphere of this super red giant star. What about aliens? Has anyone considered aliens yet? Oh, no, please don't. (laughs) Don't go there. In any case, I strongly recommend, if you have time, to go to the webpage of the American Association of Variable Star Observers, AAVSO, and they have a future article every month, and they have the start of the month for February 2020, an article written by Rich Roberts about Alpha Orioni, which is very comprehensive about what is happening in the star. That's good. So good I, will, I will recommend everyone to have a look to this article because it's quite good. Excellent. Okay, let's go. go. Let's go to the main topic main of topic. this episode. So International Day of Women and Girls in Science is the 11th of February, Mm -hmm. so it has passed, but we thought we'd dedicate this episode to that because it's very important to recognize women in science and women in physics and women in astronomy because there's a distinct lack. I want to emphasize that the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, being on the 11th of February, was decided by the United Nations by UNESCO, in 2016. So we have been celebrating these since 2017. Okay. And again, it is trying to get the gender equality in science everywhere because we really need to increase these numbers. Women are half of the population and we cannot exclude half of our workforce trying to think about science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and all this kind of subjects. It's very important. And the numbers are not good for that. No. Because at the present, less than 30% of researchers worldwide are women. That is according latest UNESCO data between 2014 and 2016. And only around 30% of all female students that are selected for STEAM-related fields in high education. And it is particularly sad with ICT, mm-hmm. because only 3% of people are women. That's a very small percent. And natural science and mathematics and statistics, this is only around 5%. Oofed. And engineering, manufacturing and construction, around 8%. I don't know about you guys, but my face has just dropped. Yes. I... It's, I, I, being a woman in science, I am obviously aware of being a minority, but I just it shocks me every single time. However, I have to say that that is much better than astronomy. I don't have the numbers here. Astronomy is definitely a lot but better. But it is right now, at least in Australia, much higher than 33 percent, probably even going around the 40 percent. Mm-hmm. Worldwide, still is low, but much higher than these numbers. I don't, I don't know to put the right number here now because I don't have it. It might be worldwide 15, 20. It might be, it might be a bit lower than that, but mm. definitely it is much higher than the 10 percent. Have to be. Definitely, definitely. Because have, luckily, in many countries, and I'm talking about countries in Europe, in US, here in Australia, 
the increasing number of women that are doing degrees in science, in math, in particularly, I'm saying, astronomy, is increasing a lot. And mm. we are seeing that. But there's a very important problem that I'd like to address today. And that is, a few years ago, in 2018, I think it was, while those numbers are good and they are increasing, I think there will be a decrease in those numbers and a decrease in those statistics because... Students in year 11 and year 12, so during the higher school certificate, known as the HSC in Australia, or in New South Wales, the physics syllabus for New South Wales now has no mention of female contributions. And that is very wrong. It is very wrong. Because, not that this was much of a problem for me when I was doing the year 12 syllabus, people need to see what they want to be. Mm -hmm. For, For more often than not, they need role models, they need to see this in action because otherwise it just won't be in their subconscious that they can exist like this and be a scientist, be a physicist, go into astronomy like I did. So the new syllabus now contains no mention of the contributions of female physicists in the field. Yeah, just for our international audience, GR9 to GR10, it is more or less equivalent to high school 13, 14 years, starting in year 9. Uh, yeah, 16, almost 16. Year 12, it is the last year before going to university here in yep. Australia, and that would be equivalent to around 17. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that would be between 14, 15, at the beginning of year 9, year 10. Yep. And, and that is a very important moment for the development of Everybody, I would exactly. say, if you are in your teens. Mm. And many times you are a bit lost. You don't know exactly what you want to do, what you would like to achieve in the future. Um, you really need to get visions of everything that is available for you, let's say that way, but also putting names and faces to other people that have achieved recognition and have contributed to those fields. I'm talking here in general, not even about science. Mm. I'm talking about in general. Just in general. Just in general. Particularly in science, we have had always the problem that it has been hugely dominated by men. Yeah. There have been an increasing contribution of women throughout history, although we have discussed that in our previous episode too, that it was just extremely difficult for women to do almost nothing because of the society and the religious and how things were, which was sad. It's Mm. sad because we have been for thousands of years losing half of the world capacity of doing things. Yep. Although there are very good examples of women that they have been very passionate and breaking rules in some way, moving that forward. And really, it is fundamental to address all of that. And we need also this kind of person, particularly people who have been very successful in the last few years, in the last 50 years, let's say about that. Mm. We need to put these women back into the recognition that what they have done. They do. We do. Because it's not, it's not just recognition, as you say. It's also just, like you said before, the role models. It is the role model. And it having, is... seeing it to believe it. So if, 
14-15 years old women, let's say women, not girls in that moment, but anyway, what they would like to be when they grow up, when they are a bit older. And I can think about this kind of TV shows like The Bachelor <laughs> or stupid little other things. Or, I, I mean, I don't want to say stupid things about the rest of things that are not science or astronomy, but other things that you relate to women because, let's say, estheticians, um, let's say, with the clothes and mm. all, all of that um, makeup. Yeah. Because that is what they have been observing during all their lives. You have to wear this kind of dress, you have to wear this kind of makeup, and you have to be this way, and then they, that is what they want to be. Exactly. At the end of the day, we need a huge change in societal norms. Def- definitely. But, definitely. but uh, baby steps. We'll get there one day. <laughs> But it is important. It is important that women realize, girls realize that they can do whatever they want to do. Mm. And also boys and men have to contribute to help women and girls to achieve this potential. That's right. Everyone should have a fair go and everyone should be able to do whatever they want to do. Mm. And everyone should be able to see other people doing that as well, to give that and path. I know it is, it is quite different. It is another full problem or situation but let's put a case of a boy that he wants to be a dancer but dancer it is usually only for girls mm. let's say that and there's a few movies that yeah. are talking about that well it is kind of the same thing the other way around yes we really need to put back this kind of personalities women that have contributed to science and to other many aspects in life and society and let everybody know, particularly our young people, teens, people, teenagers and so on, Mm. that what they have been achieving. Exactly, exactly. So the previous syllabus included more of a background in history of physics and I, I don't know how true this is, but I've heard that... They, when they first changed this syllabus to the old syllabus many, many years ago, they included more history and writing to invite girls in to do physics. Mm, I'm, I'm, Which is, I, th- I I'm, think is ridiculous. I mean, um, I love history. Mm. I love it. I love the history of the people who have been making things. And I think it helps a lot to understand how... Science is a part of our culture, of our civilization, and how it has helped a lot to achieve what we have today. Mm-hmm. So understanding the lives of these people have been always a good thing. But one, it is that part that is connecting with history, with arts even, with our society. And the other, it is explaining the science behind what these people have been doing. So the, the, the equations, let's say that, yeah. the, the phenomena, the fundamental phenomena, the f- physics or the chemistry and the biology that they have been created through the research that these persons have been developing during their lives. Exactly right. And the discoveries of women that have been contributed to the field in physics are being taught, but out of the 93 times a scientist was mentioned in the syllabus... 47 of which are mentioned, not a single one was female. Well, 
And that's in the old syllabus. That is in the old syllabus. That's the old syllabus. No identification of a single woman of the 47 scientists that were mentioned 93 times. So even the old syllabus was just not doing great. The new syllabus, however, which is in operation now and is being taught to students in schools right now, has 25 scientists mentioned 56 times. No women are referred to by name, nor are any contributions women have made to physics. None of that is included. They've, it's, they've been completely wiped out. That is very sad. It's very sad. I, mean, I, I want to believe that it's not intentional, but it, it's, it's, if, it's, if it's not intentional, then it's just ignorant. The issue here, and it is something that I tried to mention before, it is that throughout the history, the majority of scientists have been men. So mm. the main things, let's say, talk about Newton, Galileo, Kepler... They're thinking about physics and astronomy, of course. But to have to mention that, that there is no other way. Of but course. there is a moment, particularly during the last century, and perhaps you can even push it a bit, a bit mm. more, if you are doing astronomy for sure, because we Definitely. have been talking about many women astronomers during all the history, then you have to put a bit of extra effort to say, hey, this person has been very relevant. Exactly. Very important for their field. And I can think, for example, just right now, one person that was fundamental for an, our understanding of the physics right now, who is Marie Curie. Just for, for starting Easy. there. Easy, Easy one to e include. Like, e one of the most famous female scientists in the world. Let's put this into perspective. We are now surrounded by radiation. We have always been, in a way. But yeah. right now, we have our phones, our Wi-Fi, and so on. Even the light that's around us right now, that's radiation. That is radiation. That is radiation. Many people, and that has been an issue connecting very much with pseudoscience, think that this kind of radiation is going to affect us and produce some cancer and something like that. Mm. The problem here is that they are confusing what is a radiation with radioactivity. Yes. <laughs> Radioactivity, which, by the way, is completely natural. It is another force of the nature. Mm -hmm. It is just happening there. It is happening in a banana. Exactly. <laughs> it's happening in the water. If it you eat a banana, you are radioactive. All, all around us, continuously. Of course, there are substances that are much more radioactive than the others. Uranium, thorium, plutonium, for example. Mm. Well, Marie Curie was the person that discovered for the first time the laws behind radioactivity. That's right. And Huge contribution to huge contrib Not only that, she was also a very helpful person and she didn't want to earn money, let's say, with all this research. Mm. Actually, it was the other way around. During the First War, she was actually paying for using, uh, and not an invention, but uh, she developed an um, X-ray machine that you can move around. Oh, yeah. It was very heavy, so the X-ray machine was already there, but it was invented by another person, I don't remember. But she, Marie Curie, did an invention that he was able to move things around, and she paid for that. And there, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people during World War One that used that machine, mm. or those machines. And also... Won two Nobel Prizes, not one, but two. What does a woman have to do to get some recognition around here? <laughs> Definitely. Funny enough, the first one 
that was given to both uh, Pierre Curie, her mm. husband, yeah. and to uh, Marie Curie. Originally, it was only given to Pierre Curie and of to course. another one. And it was Pierre, her husband, who said, no, I'm not going to accept that unless you are also giving the prize to my wife because she has done as much or even more than what I have done. What a great person. What a keeper. Good job, Marie. <laughs> pity that he died very soon. Anyway. But yeah, just like... What what does a girl, what does a woman have to do <laughs> to be recognized? There are ma- many examples. Oh and if goodness. we are talking about astronomy, the other example that we can use Rosalind Franklin. Rosalind Franklin. So, Easy. You only have to look for some few of these examples. And I I know it is difficult to put women in scientific contribution that happened two hundred years ago or more. Because yeah. they were that just didn't really mm-hmm. happen back then. But if we really want to change our way of understanding society and that everyone is very welcome to help in science, technology, mathematics, we really need not only half of our population, but all the population to have the same opportunities to do whatever they want to do in science. And exactly. Work. Give this opportunity to everyone. And now, if you are equally as outraged about this as us, um, we actually have a very special guest who's going to be joining us on the episode today. The woman behind this movement to have women be recognized and attributed in the science curriculum is astrophysicist Kat Ross. And I'm very excited to have her on the show. Yes, I also am very excited about that. Now there's one particular superstar who is pushing this change to get more recognition for women in the physics syllabus. And that person is wonderful friend, colleague, amazing person all around, Kat Ross. Thank you for joining us on The Scientists. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It is really a pleasure that you are with us and we are going to ask you some few things about why. What is all this about? What is the problem? Why why we are so concerned about that? And we're so mm-hmm. outraged. So I think the first thing I want to start with is how did you find out about these changes in the syllabus? So physics, uh, well, the New South Wales Education introduced a new physics syllabus in around 2017 to be taught to year 11 students in 2018. And it was a really great syllabus, I think a really great change for the direction of physics in New South Wales. But uh, it was a little difficult for teachers. There were a lot of new topics and areas that they may not be familiar with. So I was working with a group and a team that was working to teach the teachers the physics in this syllabus. Uh, and it was part of that job. We had to go through single dot point by single dot point, very rigorous, very intense. It's a very boring document. But we noticed they were taught about radioactivity and not about Marie Curie, who literally invented the field and created the word radioactivity. So it mm-hmm. seemed a little odd that she wouldn't be included. Mm. Inter- we said the exact same thing. Exactly, yeah. because we were putting exactly that Marie Curie, the work of Marie you Curie can't. in radioactivity, as an example, just a moment ago when we were yeah. discussing a bit more the topic. Exactly. The woman won two Nobel Prizes. Two. What does a woman have to do to get some recognition <laughs> around here? Exactly. I mean, you invent a field and still when we teach that field, you don't get taught with it. It just seems very ridiculous that you can't include her there. Uh, So we realized if Marie Curie wasn't in there, who else was missing? So I read through every single dot point 
in the physics syllabus every single word and counted all the scientists and all uh, tried to figure out who was who and how many women were mentioned, which is when I realised it was a pretty sad statistic. Yeah. Uh, it's, Not it's, many. It's, it's <laughs> shocking, is it? So how did you feel about it when you first were starting to see the problem? Well, as I was reading it, I'll be honest, it was kind of a please just let there be one. The more you kept reading, it was the more just hoping for at least one woman in there. But, you know, the longer it was just sadder and sadder and sadder as you kept reading it. But eventually I kind of turned that sadness into a bit more of an anger and a fire to see it changed. I mean, it's something that we can so easily fix and we're already introducing a new syllabus. It's currently undergoing, you know, a bit of a probationary period. It's a perfect time to change it and introduce women. So it kind of lit the fire in my belly to see it changed rather than just sit there and be sad continuously. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That yeah. is that is mm. actually the way to go. That is the way mm. to go because you can get the anger and the frustration that something that should have been done by default, mm. in, particularly in, well, in 2020, <laughs> 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 it should have been things of the past and they still are happening. So you have two options or be angry about that or say try to fight it back, to try mm. to get the recognition that these uh, women need the place where mm -hmm. they should be. So not a single woman was mentioned nope. in the syllabus. Yeah, not one. Not one in physics. And, uh, well, that's my area of expertise, and I found out because I was focusing on the physics syllabus. I did extend to the rest of science courses in New South Wales to see if it was just physics or is the problem pretty much uh, universal. Sadly, it does seem to be the case across all STEM courses in oh, New South no. Wales, which is very disheartening. But if it's going to happen anywhere, at least let it be in New South Wales because they're currently doing a full curriculum review from K to 12, which means that for the first time in 15 years, we can actually introduce a change across the entire curriculum to create not just science courses that mention women, but actively encourage female participation by having projects where students can lead their own research and look into the ways that women have contributed to science. We have a really great opportunity to be at the forefront of education in Australia. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That is very good. Yes. And I guess that kind of answers that question of what made you want to make this change, but why is it also important to make this change? It's important for so many reasons. And more importantly as well, it's not just for female scientists. Like it is amazing to have the role models for female scientists and emerging female scientists, but everyone benefits from learning about female scientists. Mm -hmm. Having the context and learning about the scientists that discovered the knowledge really helps students contextualize that knowledge and place it into the wider field but if you're just teaching of men you're normalizing for all students that it's only men who can contribute to science mm. which is just flat out incorrect it's never been the case and it's certainly not the case now so when we introduce women all students benefit by having the recognition for men and women and everyone who deserves the recognition that they have contributed to science and we normalize that anyone regardless of your gender identity you can have a career in STEM. Yes and that is really mm. important the, the, the need of having these role models and, and mm. we were mentioning before that when we are talking about scientists 200 or so 300 years ago in the past and it's really really difficult to find 
women because of the society, mm -hmm. the way it was. But right now, mm. in the last century, particularly in the last 50, 60 years, well, the last century, let's say that, uh, there have been plenty of contributions of fantastic women that they have mm -hmm. really broken our understanding of physics in particular, other fields too, and they just deserve to be there, and people have to know about these mm -hmm. fantastic women. It's very much also connected to the bit of the history in the sense of how a person is actually helping to contribute advancing mm -hmm. science mm -hmm. and how much that is related to the society and the culture that that person is living, how everything is changing, how much is that is connected. And it is really helping students to put a broader context of mm -hmm. what we are trying to understand in physics, let's say, no? the mm -hmm. equations. So it is not just the equations or the principia, the formulations mm -hmm. there. It is just what it is behind. Why the need of finding mm -hmm. that resource? Why that happened? And, and definitely seeing that it is possible not only for men, but women, that women are half of the population of our force, mm -hmm. that we are not using that capacity. It is just absurd. Indeed. Yeah, and, and I mean, physics any... is a really complex subject. And so when you teach just the physics by itself, it can be really hard to grasp for a lot of students. But if you teach it in the way this scientist discovered this step and you build on it for the building blocks, the way that it was discovered, it can really break down the physics that can be super complex when you're teaching it at an advanced level. It can break it down into easy to grasp chunks for students as well. So teaching of those discoveries doesn't just make it personal for the students to relate to, but it actually allows them to have a deeper understanding and retain that information for longer as well. Exactly. So there's a whole whole wealth of reasons why this is so, mm -hmm. so important, not just for the recognition or anything like that and role models. But did you have any female role models in physics or astronomy when you were going along that path? When I was a student, uh, not really, because we didn't really learn of them. So as a kid, I had one... Yeah, exactly. And I think you'll find a lot of female scientists maybe have one or two and it might be someone that they were very close to in you personally, but you rarely see people who have grown up learning of them in integrated into the courses. I did have a huge uh, sort of role model crush on uh, uh, Catherine Janeway, Captain Catherine Janeway from <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> it helped that she had the same name and she was a total badass and a great scientist. So that's probably where it started, but it's, it's upsetting that I had to go to Star Trek to be able to see just representation of exactly. females in yes, STEM it is, it when realistically right. it should just be in the classroom. It yeah. should, and that's where it should really start yes. as well. Mm -hmm. So Kat, you're making changes, you're trying to make changes in the syllabus. How can we and how can our listeners help you? Well, uh, amazingly, I've already had so much support that we've actually started a discussion with the Minister for Education and Early Childhood Learning in New South Wales, Sarah Mitchell. Uh, she's been fantastic and she's helping drive this through in New South Wales. So we're actually aiming higher now. We're aiming for an Australian curriculum review to change and introduce women where they belong. So you can help by, first of all, signing my petition on change.org. So change.org slash include her, and it should be in the notes for the podcast as well. Yep. Uh, but you can also post a photo of yourself with a sign saying hashtag include her and pledge yourself to including women in your life, whether that's in class, in your school, in your workplace, whatever it may be, but pledge to include women in your life and make sure that they're getting the recognition where they deserve to be. Yeah. 
Awesome. Yes. Again, we are talking generally here about science, but that is not mm -hmm. only a problem in science. It is a problem exactly. in, in everything. No, it is just a recognition that women really need to get in all aspects of our lives, social and political and research and mm -hmm. in, in all the, the aspects of that. That's right. And you can have a look at your own textbooks and have a look at your, your children's or your relatives' textbooks. Have a look and see how many women are mentioned there. And if you see that there's a huge discrepancy, join my fight and message them, email them, say, I've noticed this is a little biased. Do you think that you should change it? Because I do. That's exactly how I started. And look where it's got me so far. We're changing the New South Wales syllabus. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, we, from the bottom of the sky into this heart, we do wish you all the best <laughs> in your endeavor to make this big societal change. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the results. Thank you so much, Kat, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Isn't that fantastic? Just Kat is just incredible. And I'm really excited to see what she actually achieves out of all of this. So good stuff. But now for our last segment of the episode, the classic what's up. What's up? What's up? And I'm excited about this what's up. I do like this object. It's a beautiful object. Well, originally I thought that we were also to be talking a bit more about pulsars, but we have mentioned pulsars on, we this, did? on yes. this episode uh, because I wanted to talk a bit more about the contribution of uh, Jocelyn Bell into the real discovery of the pulsars, that she did plenty of the work, and but she was still an undergraduate to PhD student, and then she was not recognized with the Nobel Prize of Physics that it was given to her supervisor. Mm. But anyway, perhaps I will keep that for another day. Mm -hmm. We can talk a bit more about another day. But uh, I have already chosen the Crab Nebula. Excellent. Great one. It is a fantastic object to see, and I don't remember if we have even had a supernova remnant before for WhatsApp. I don't think we have. The closest thing that we have had to a supernova remnant it is 30 Doradus. Okay. But still, 30 Doradus is a star forming region. 30 Doradus was in our episode 14 in season 2. Yeah, but Craft uh, Nebula it is uh, the remnant of a star that exploded in 1054, mm -hmm. that it was observed by the Chinese, uh, yes. Japanese by the Indians in Northern uh, America. I don't know what Europeans were doing. <laughs> I have a feeling of what had happened, but I will let that to another moment, <laughs> in the sense of, well, this expression was visible even during the day. The star was very, very bright. And it is very well recorded in... Can we have Chinese. another one? <laughs> no, 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 no not with Beetlejuice, no, <laughs> with another one, okay. But remember that we have one of those. Perhaps we have to say bye-bye to astronomical observations during some few months. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> Damn it. Anyway, so coming back to that, uh, I was trying to say that <clears throat> in those times, and we are talking about the very Middle Ages in Europe, skies were sacred. Mm. They cannot change. They couldn't change. So I have the feeling that there were, of course, observations of the supernova, the 1054 supernova. Mm. Unfortunately, all those notes have been destroyed. Oh, no. 
because well it was against the it was against the sacred law of yes. how society works exactly perhaps i'm wrong and i just extrapolating whatever anyway sorry i was going to talk about this this supernova crab quick, nebula quick note though just if if you search the crab nebula on google and you see the photos if you haven't seen a photo of it before does it really look like a crab i don't think so well there was someone who observed it for the first time and said hmm, it seems that they have a filamentary structure reminds me a crab and tried to find who that person is. It was not Charles Messier, by the way, that is M1. It is the Correct. first object of the very famous of the catalog, Messier catalog. catalog. Although it was not first observed by Charles Messier. It was first observed by John Bevis, that was a British astronomer, England astronomer, around 1731. It was not till 1758 when Charles Messier wrote it down as the first object just to try to find the comet that mm. he wanted to find in the sky. That was <laughs> the real reason why Charles Messier prepared all of this. Ah, there you go. We now have all the proofs that it is just a remnant of this star. We have found the pulsar in there. We have seen the movement or the expansion of the gas. Mm. And we have been able to calculate the expansion rate of that. And if you put everything back backwards... Rewind time. Everything should be in a point at around the year 1050. Whoa, that's pretty good. So I think we now very well know what is happening. So it is an object that you can even identify with binoculars if you are in a dark place. That's a tiny, fuzzy thing. It is extended, so if you really want to see it, again, go to a dark place. Mm -hmm. Don't put that much magnification at the beginning. Perhaps later you can put a bit more. But definitely with uh, even a small telescope in a dark place, and I insist, in a dark place. Yes, always dark places. You will see it. As it has plenty of gas, and this gas is excited, if you are using one of these filters like Oxygen-3 to remove a bit of the light pollution, it will appear much more dramatically. Mm. So it is a nice object to see. The apparent magnitude of the Crab Nebula it is around 8.4, but the size it is around one-fourth of the full moon. Oh, that's pretty big. So, so that is why even the magnitude is relatively right. It's a diffuse object and you really need to have the background sky to be dark enough. Yeah. Awesome. There we go. That's our what's up for this episode. Quafuego, we're looking forward to seeing maybe a photo of the Crab Nebula <laughs> sometime <laughs> soon. No pressure. No pressure. No, no pressure. pressure you have three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, not three weeks for us now. Two weeks for when the moment we really... Come on, I cannot avoid being confused with all these things. So, yeah, but you, two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. They said it again, though. He has two weeks. No, you can keep it. If oh. <laughs> <laughs> but then time is not linear. <laughs> ah. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode. This very special episode for the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. We hope you enjoyed it. You can actually contribute to the change of the syllabus by going to change.org. We'll put a link in our episode description on mm -hmm. where you can sign the petition to help Kat and get the recognition that women deserve in our physics syllabus. Okay, and I think that that is all for us. That's all for, for us. today. So We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.
there are some kind of fuzzy objects that are appearing in green oh. that we are calling Greenpeace, Greenpeace galaxies. Okay. And they... Come on, what is happening? <laughs> we usually don't have planes here. Sorry. <laughs> we can put that little, just that little bit at the end. <laughs> I might. <laughs> 